All right, so let's talk franchises for a second, people. Um, to cut to the chase, pretty much, let's let's keep it a bean. Every franchise that we've ever known, that we've ever come to know and love, you know, I don't care if it's your favorite, my favorite, his favorite, her favorite, whatever the case may be, doesn't matter. Let's keep it real. Every single franchise has its fair share of bad decisions. And I say that in the defense of this this entire episode, kind of in a way, uh, I don't know if I'm contradicting myself here, but every franchise has, has fucked up. You know, from Halloween to Fast and Furious to Mission Impossible to Batman to The Avengers, whatever your poison is, whatever your genre is, whatever your franchise is, there's no perfect franchise out here. And and even Saw, which I think is one of the franchises that has the best continuity, some of the best continuity I've ever seen on screen before. But even that series has fucked up, whether it's killing certain characters, whether it's just making certain uh, decisions as far as the story goes, like every series has this but you do have the purists out there who are always like oh well this is a perfect series i've never seen anything wrong with it and that's fine that's perfectly fine people because i always say what you know uh, how boring would the world be if you know if we all had the same opinions on everything so i understand we're going to agree to disagree on that that's fine and i have no no um you know ill intent in any bad words for the purists out there y'all stick by your franchises man if y'all see it as perfect then y'all see it as perfect i have singular films that i feel like are perfect films that people would tend to disagree with me on but that's fine man we all have opinions everyone has opinions but i feel like i'm justified here i feel like i'm justified here to talk about dumbass franchise decisions as far as killing certain characters off now a lot of series have done it uh, in the past, uh, as of recently, they, they, they've they done it. Whether they kill them off just to bring them back or whether they kill them off just for shock value or just contractual agreements, uh, creative disputes on set that require script changes and have these characters killed off unexpectedly, I don't know. There are a bunch of different instances that you can use um, as far as film franchises go with killing characters off, but there are some moments where this happens where it completely fucks the rest of the the movie up and the future of your franchise. So I feel like these um what do I have? 6 here? These 6 These 6 characters I have here. I feel like a lot of people out there are going to share the same sentiment. Um because some of these are very popular amongst people uh especially online, you know, amongst the 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 horror just the the film community in general a lot of these are common denominators with what people you know as far as what people complain about with these movie franchises and a lot of times these these series couldn't recover from this and a lot of times you know if this is the movie we left off on and they did a dumbass decision uh killing off a character they're in limbo right now they're still stuck in limbo i don't know but we're definitely going to get to these people. Uh, you know, I always I say this every time, and I don't want to take up too much of y'all time, but I don't know how crazy how crazy I'm going to get um, into these points that I make, you know, in my notes and, and and stuff like that. So I just want to start. I really want to start. Of you know, I want to start about killing off these characters, man. These beloved characters that people just some people may or may not have just latched onto, but these are the ones I latched onto. So when these characters got killed off in the franchises, I'm like, okay, um, like I'm kind of taken out of the film now. I'm, I'm rocking with you because it's all you you either already got my money or I'm already here at home watching. So let's see what else you got. 
And sometimes they didn't recover for the rest of the movie. Sometimes they didn't recover for the rest of the series. And like I said, sometimes they just get stuck in limbo. Like, you know, like one of these for sure is definitely stuck in limbo for sure. And there's no telling what they're going to do. They might have to go back to the drawing board and reboot the whole goddamn series because you know what? I'm not going to we'll get there when we get there, people. Let's just focus on number one for now. Because I don't want to get sidetracked. I don't want my notes to intertwine. And I don't want to sound a little... I don't want to sound crazier and more scrambled than I already do in these episodes. So let's get to number one. Dumbass franchise decisions killing characters. My number one pick for the dumbest franchise decision is killing Duke and G.I. Joe Retaliation. Now, let me stop y'all. I know a lot of people didn't like the first one. I know a lot of people that didn't like the first one hated the second one. And I know we do have a Snake Eyes movie that's in no way tied to anything but the G.I. Joe name. There's a brand new cast. There's a brand new story. There's a brand new origin. I get it, people. These movies vary in quality, and I understand that. Um, different directors each time, not necessarily too true to the cartoon. I, I understand everybody's complaints. Now, let me just say this. First of all, Duke was played by Channing Tatum for anybody that doesn't know. And yeah, he was the he was basically the anchor of that first film, the main character of that first film for the most part uh, out of all the Jews. He came back for the second movie. They kill his ass off. So let's just ask ourselves the question. Has the series done stupid shit prior to killing off Duke in G.I. Joe Retaliation? And my answer. Absolutely. The first movie's dumb. The first movie's done, and I say that, listen, no disrespect to Steven Summers. I love the first two Mummy movies he directed. I even like the third one, but Rob Cohen, who did the first Fast and Furious movie, directed that. Steven Summers did not come back. Um, Deep Rising is one of, that's his best movie for me. One of my favorite fucking films to come out that year, and just one of my favorite creature features in general. And uh, I never saw Odd Thomas, but I do want to see it and, you know, pay my respects to Anton Yelkin. I don't think that was his last role, but it's like a supernatural horror type of movie. Steven Summers directed and he also directed um, Van Helsing. Now, one of the things that Steven Summers is known for, and this is why I say the movie gets really fucking stupid. The first G.I. Joe, uh, The Rise of Cobra is the subtitle. Steven Summers is, you know, he gets his rocks off special effects. That's what the guy does. You know, there's going to be an international cast. That's one of the best things I love about his films. He has an international cast. He'll have blacks, whites, Indians, Hispanics, whatever, all types of nationalities in there. I love that he merges that together. That's amazing. Um, and he loves his special effects. He loves his fucking CG creatures, his CG people. And it, like, I feel like there's a certain amount of money you have to give Steven Summers to make a movie because he's going to go fucking nuts with the CG, which is what he did with that first G.I. Joe movie. That shit is it, it, it just it's insane. It literally is like a cartoon come to life. Now, I say that to say this. That's one of the reasons I have so much dumb fun with that first movie. Marlon Wayans as a uh, ripcord. Dennis Quaid is in there. The girl that played the babysitter. I can't remember that actress's name, but the girl that played the babysitter in the Amityville horror remake is in there. She plays Scarlet. Uh, Ray Park, who played Darth Maul and Toad in the first X-Men movie, plays Snake Eyes. Uh, it's a really great cast, man. And Channing Tatum, like I said, is the anchor as Duke of that first movie. He's the main character. He's the one that has the backstory. He's the one that's tied to the characters from the backstory. He's the he's the he's the unofficial leader of the Joes, man. He's the unsung hero. And that first movie, he's you know, 
I'm not going to say it's Channing Tatum's best performance, you know, because he's trying to be an action guy and he's trying to act where need be. But it's just not my favorite performance from him because there are a lot of line. There's a lot of line delivery that just doesn't hit for me. But that's not to take away from the fact that he is the anchor of the film. Like, I don't know. I, I can't keep putting the emphasis on that. So for me to get so attached to the character of Duke and see what happens in the next movie literally in probably the first 15 20 minutes easily if that i'm i'm actually being nice i'm giving them a compliment here because i think it might have been before 15 20 minutes but how it happens basically is we don't get any mention of any of the previous joes duke is the only one to come back and one of the things i love about gi joe retaliation more than the first movie is that it's way more grounded in reality now there's still outlandish gi joe type of shit that goes on there's a mountain sequence a fight sequence with the ninjas and snake eyes and um not jinx i can't remember the the girl's name that snake eyes is fighting with in storm shadow but it's one of the best sequences in the entire movie uh no i'm sorry it is the best sequence in the entire movie there's a bunch of outlandish cartoonish shit going on in the film but it's way more realistic and i feel like um the action is just handled a lot better it's not just things exploding there's a lot of fight choreography that uh that that was you know carefully planned and stuff like that more so with snake eyes and storm shadow but i do like i, I favor as far as being grounded i favor gi joe retaliation more than the first rise of cobra movie but how this happens to duke right him and the rock are now best friends and the rock plays uh roadblock from the the gi joe cartoon so you know they're in their little platoon thing and you see that the rock and duke have uh you know they've built such a strong friendship he's basically the new ripcord for channing tatum's character so what happens is these guys are all out in the desert and they think that you know their fellow security has come with the helicopters but everything starts getting shot up their rockets getting shot everywhere the joes are dying exploding all over the place channing tatum seeks cover um the the two other characters that the rocks character roadblock is with they seek cover and it's like everybody's running for their lives and they're dying and it's a big war zone it's almost like a fucking saving private ryan scene but what happens is duke goes to save somebody and while i think he does save that guy's life a rocket hits him a rocket hits him and i think it blows up the car that he's next to and he just dies now i heard rumors once upon a time that Shannon Tatum was either filming something or just didn't want to be there. So they wrote his, they killed his character off. Like there were rewrites to the script. Now that's only a rumor. I have no proof to that. I haven't read it online. I haven't seen any interviews with the director. John M. Chu is the guy that directed the film, uh, the, the sequel, by the way. And, you know, Duke just, he blows the fuck up, man. And there's a mention of him later on, you know, when they meet Bruce Willis and it's just like, yeah, it's, uh, Sergeant Duke, he saved my life, sir. And Bruce Willis like, yeah, he saved mine too. And da, 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 Like there's, there's a little couple mentions of him here and there, but once he's gone, he's gone. And I'm like, okay, you got the rock to carry this film, but this was before the rock was like, I want to say this was before he was as charismatic as he is now on screen. And the other two people, you know, the guy, the guy that plays the rock's right hand man he is no substitution for duke you know he's not a substitution like character wise and he's not a substitution acting wise for channing tatum because this guy is flat as shit he's flat as hell and he's the same guy who was in that movie venom not uh the tom hardy movie but the 2005 horror movie he's the one that plays um ray sawyer who's the serial killer he plays ray sawyer's son and he's all he also plays um oh man seth gecko in the dust till dawn tv show and he's actually okay in there because it's almost like he's doing a you know a george clooney impression but he's kind of putting his own little flair on it so he's not too bad in that however he's 
he's flat as shit here. His acting is terrible in this movie. The girl is really no substitute for Scarlet in the last movie. So it's like The Rock doesn't really have anything to work with as far as these performances around him. So I feel like it kind of brings his performance down. And I feel like having Channing Tatum in the movie for a second time would have benefited and maybe the response would have been differently you know like why is that dumb to kill his character off because he was duke was that guy he's the guy you want to center the story around and just build up the rest of the joes around him have him be more of a leader he can he could have been the he had the potential to possibly after that first movie to be in the same position that Dennis Quaid was in, but be a little more hands on, be in the field a lot more because Dennis Quaid was always in that first movie popping up via hologram or he was always in his office talking shit or just in the elevator like, yeah, technically G.I. Joe doesn't exist. So I'm going to just, you know, get my check and just say my lines the way I'm supposed to like no disrespect to Dennis Quaid. But it's like, come on, man, you you were just there just to be there. I don't know what type of light bill you had to pay or phone bill or something like that. You you were just there, just kind of passing time through. But I feel like Channing Tatum's character, Duke, could have been that Dennis Quaid character, but could have been a field general. He could have been in charge of everything. And Channing Tatum and Bruce Willis in a G.I. Joe movie? Like, come on now. Come on now. Now, the question to move on forward to, uh, before we move on to number two, the question is, how can they recover from this, from killing Duke? Um, they can. And honestly, by the looks of, like I said, I haven't seen Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe origin story movie just yet, but from the looks of it, and there's two clips in particular that I saw, I will not spoil them for anybody, it looks like they did recover. Now, I know it got a lot of bad reviews, but it looks, you know, I said one of the things I loved about G.I. Joe Retaliation was how grounded it was as opposed to that first movie being like a comic book pretty much come to life. But the Snake Eyes origin story seems way better than both of those movies, way more entertaining, way more badass. And I'm all for that, man. I'm all for that. So I do think they can recover. And I hope they do when I finally get a chance to watch that Snake Eyes film. I hope they do recover from that, man. And I hope that movie is good enough and was received well enough for them to keep making G.I. Joe movies. Because I feel like there's a there's a big enough fan base for it out there somewhere. Uh, you know, I feel like people are... <laughs> People are strange enough, and you know I'm in that category as well. But you know, there's more than enough characters to go around. Um, there's a plethora of characters to use in in the GI Joe universe, and we don't have to use the same fucking characters every single time. Of course, you got to have Snake Eyes or Storm Shadow. That's like that's a given. But there's so many characters you can do, uh, you can introduce to recover from that you know dumbass decision that they made by killing off Duke. Now, number two. Another action franchise, people. So we're keeping it action before we jump into the horror shit. Um, number two, dumbass franchise decisions. Killing John Connor in Terminator Dark Fate, people. God, take my glasses off for this one. I'm going to try not to rant. I'm going to try not to rant, people, because I feel like when I when I saw Terminator Dark Fate, that was one of the, the earlier, the earliest reviews i had ever done on this podcast two years and some change ago and i think i gave it like a seven and a half seven i'm not sure but or maybe even an eight i this one of those movies i was bamboozled because the more i watch it now it's like halloween 2018 the more i watch it now or the more i watched it afterwards um i was like wait something's not right here something's not right there I'm st i started to pick apart the flaws in in so many crazy ways man and i'm just like yo like there's this much wrong with this fucking movie like i had no idea but John Con Dark Fate, I, I don't know whose idea it was, 
you know, I should have wrote the, the screenwriters' names down for this episode. I'm very ill-prepared in, in comparison to how I usually am, people. But hopefully y'all will forgive me for that. First of all, let's get to the question. Has the series done dumb shit prior? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one could argue that making the T-800 Arnold Schwarzenegger a good guy in Terminator 2 was a dumb decision. I disagree. Terminator 2 was, it was good as a switch because they had a villain that was way more dangerous than um, the T-800 with Robert Patrick. Shout out. Um, I... I don't think it was a dumb decision making in, in the second movie, making him a good guy. Uh, plus, I think Terminator 2 is one of the greatest action movies of all time, has some of the greatest action scenes of all time, and uh, is one of the greatest sequels of all time. It's the best in the series. Hands fucking down. Yes, it's better than the, origi- better than the original. Y'all can argue me down about that all day, all night. Long as it's respectfully, I don't care, but nothing will change my mind until proven otherwise. You know, they got to come out with... I don't know, either a a reboot that tops that where Michael Bay and James Cameron and Christopher Nolan team up in a joint project to work on it together or Terminator 2 is just going to forever be the best one in the series. Now, did they do dumb shit prior? Uh, Terminator 2, not so much, not even in the first one, but Terminator 3, yes, they did. Uh, I think putting Nick Stahl in as John Connor was terrible casting uh i did not like him as john connor at all um y'all can actually check out my commentaries for uh you know terminator 1 and terminator 2 by the way i'm holding out on terminator 3 and the rest of the series for a little bit but i will get back to them eventually but uh terminator 3 i i did not like that john connor at all i didn't give a fuck whether he lived or died or not i liked uh claire dames as Catherine brewster she was okay. Uh, I like that they brought the actor who played Dr. Silverman in the first two movies. I like that they brought him back. Of course, it's always good to see Arnold in anything goddamn there. But they did dumb decisions in that movie because the moment you make the T-800 a joke, then the intimidation factor is gone. Any type of horror elements that the first movie and second movie might have had are out the window at this point. The moment Arnold walks into, you know, a strip club, for women to see men dance and the guy's like move bitch wait your turn and the gay guy you know i'm not even gonna say he's gay i'm just gonna say he's very flamboyant let me let me let me be proper here he's a very flamboyant guy and you know arnold walks out of that that strip club with the guy's clothes on you know it's one of those moments i need your clothes your boots and your motorcycle but it's one of those moments so he walks out looking badass he's got a new leather jacket i actually love the leather jacket that they have on him in terminator 3 but he puts on these starry glittery sunglasses and i know it's there for laughs but it's just in poor taste in comparison to how the t-800 showed up in the first two movies you know he comes in there he rips out somebody's heart he fucks up bill paxton and shit like that he kills shao khan and then he gets the one the one guy's clothes you don't know if he kills that guy or not then in the second movie he fucks those dudes up at the pool hall you know he throws one dude on the grill he you know they they're breaking pool sticks over his head he's throwing people out the window he's stabbing people in the back stuck to the pool table and the dude's like pull it out pull it out pull it out like that bad assery level 5000 so you go from that to him going into a strip club manhandling a flamboyant male dancer and walking out with those fugazi ass sunglasses on and then he crushes them and switches to the regular sunglasses it's like come on man another thing that they strayed away from in in uh terminator 3 that was a dumbass decision were the practical effects i know there were practical effects used but the majority of that shit was layered over with cg they just got too fucking wacky and goofy with it so yes the series has made dumbass decisions prior a lot of people would argue that making the series pg-13 with terminator salvation 
was a dumbass decision. I disagree because I feel like that's the best sequel after part two. I really, truly do. Now, John Connor, man, how does it happen? We get the opening. Literally, this motherfucker dies quicker than Duke did in G.I. Joe Retaliation. But John Connor, beloved John Connor, who was played by Edward Furlong, the, the, the centerpiece of the fucking second movie, the best character of the second movie. He's the reason people love Terminator 2. You know, I, it, it was just the fact that they were bringing him back and James Cameron, he was even bullshitting like, yes, for people that are asking, Edward Furlong is back in the movie. And it's like, no, the fuck he's not. Y'all probably paid him just to use his likeness on screen so he wouldn't sue y'all. You know what I'm saying? But they, they used the stand in CG and the CG looks phenomenal. The CG looks phenomenal on, uh, the kid who ever played John Connor in Dark Fate, the CG looks phenomenal on the actress who ever played Sarah Connor and whoever played the T-800 Arnold Schwarzenegger's role in the movie. So there's this opening where Sarah Connor's narrating and she's like, we stopped Judgment Day. I just took six volumes and I cannot elevate my voice past these decibels type of shit. Like her voice is just so laid back and low as she's narrating. I mean, as she should, it's a nice callback to Terminator 2. And you would think that because this is a direct sequel to Terminator 2, John Connor is going to be back into the fold with his mom. You know, they got the flashback sequence popping. They're at like a tiki bar or whatever it is on the beach somewhere. And next thing you know, while she's narrating, this big ass guy is just walking behind her. You kind of don't really pay it no mind, but then you're like, wait, who the fuck is this big physically fit guy who looked like he could tear somebody in half with his bare hands? So you see as John Connor gets his drinks for him and his mom, he turns around and he's just shell-shocked, like he just is staring death in the face, which he very much is. And you see John Connor's eyes just widen as this guy who's walking up to him, you see it's the Terminator. How he came back, who knows? I forgot the, the plot point of how that Terminator came back at that time. But he takes this shotgun out of his bag and blasts John Connor in the fucking chest. And Sarah, you know, Sarah starts lighting him up with her pistol. He grabs her, flips her ass over backwards and disarms her. John Connor's still alive, but he's on the ground staring at his mom with his hand out. You know, he's reaching for his mother and all Sarah Connor can do in shock is just stare at her son. Then you hear another shot go off, but the camera's on Sarah Connor. Then you see Arnold looking at, um, you know, through his Terminator vision, you see him looking at John Connor, subject or target terminated. That's it. And John Connor's dead. John Connor, people, the the key to the future is fucking dead at this point. And I'm not talking dead in the sense that, oh, we can go back in time and save him. No, this fucker is dead. And Sarah Connor runs over to him while Terminator just walks off and she's holding her son and she's just like, I'm still high doing this narration, but I couldn't even save my son. We stopped Judgment Day, but I couldn't stop the Terminator. And it's just, and John Connor's dead at that point. He's fucking dead. He's dead. Like I, like I, I for the life of me, I don't know who thought this was a good idea. And this shit was such a sucker punch, man. Because what they did was they fucked people over. They got everybody gassed up, saying, "Yeah, this is a direct sequel to Terminator 2. This is the one that y'all was waiting for. We tried that direct sequel shit before and threw in some shit, you know, with Terminator Genesis, which was a stinker. Oh my god, that movie sucks." But they're like, listen, this is the one that y'all been waiting for. Wait till y'all see what we do here. No. No, man, because what y'all did was y'all suckered people in to pay their money to sit down in that theater. And then the director and the writer were like, okay, is everybody seated? All right, everybody good? Y'all y'all strapped in? Y'all got y'all popcorn? Everybody hit up this, the concession stand? Everybody went to the bathroom, right? 
boom, John Connor's dead. I got y'all money. Now y'all in here. Y'all not going to walk out five, ten minutes into the movie. I know y'all ain't going to do that. So y'all might as well just keep y'all asses glued to these seats and enjoy the rest of this crazy ass movie where a lot of shit doesn't make sense and will never live up to even Terminator Salvation because that's exactly what the fuck happened. Now, it's stupid because why would you you have this character that you built so much on that you set up even in flashbacks in Terminator 2 where you see the older John Connor with the scar on his face you don't see how he got the scar until Terminator Salvation but you even build him up in the first movie we got him in the second shitty character but they built on his story in the third one did all that shit like everything that y'all did the different variations of this character this beloved character even when they made him a Terminator at some point I don't like Jason Clark as John Connor but it was interesting because I'm like okay how do they bounce back from this they didn't bounce back from that movie at all but I'm just saying why would you do that in the opening moments of the film I'm thinking John Connor was going to pop up somewhere in the movie him and his mom were going to reconcile and they were going to wreck shit side by side as older versions of their characters with this Terminator going up against Gabriel Luna's uh, Rev 9 and, and you know teaming up with um God damn, I can't remember the actress's name. Oh, goodness. Mackenzie Davis is her name who plays the character Grace. She's an enhanced Terminator from the future and all of that stuff. And then in the midst of everything, you've got this girl who's pretty much the new Sarah Connor. You know, she's the mother of the future type of shit. But you got to ask the question, how can they recover? Honestly, take your asses to the top floor of what is Terminator at this point? Paramount bought the rights to it or something like that. Take y'all asses to the very top floor of Paramount where the where the top execs reside. Get y'all some drugs and some alcohol. I don't, you know, I don't advocate people doing drugs, uh, but I drink, so I'll advocate somebody drinking. Get y'all some fine liquor. Whatever y'all drug of choice is, because y'all know y'all I know y'all do it because y'all was on probably on crack thinking of this shit. But whatever y'all do, I don't care how y'all gotta get fired up. Go back to that fucking drawing board, get y'all shit together, and give me something better. Because I think at this point, with ev- with the with the shit that they pulled with Terminator Dark Fate in the opening minutes and some of the shit that they did throughout the movie, it's time, man. It's time. There, I don't think you can recover from that. I, I don't think that there will be a Terminator Dark Fate sequel that the majority of fans would be happy to see because I know a lot of people were disappointed. It underperformed at the box office, even for a Terminator movie, underperformed. I don't know how the box office numbers vary throughout the series, but I know this one was a box office bomb for the most part uh, in comparison to the rest of them. But um, yeah, y'all need to go back to the drawing board, man. It's that time. It's about that time to go back. Uh, you know, just do it. Just do it, man. Just start over. You know, if y'all can check out my episode. I don't remember where the hell it resides, but it's somewhere in the wreckage. Y'all can listen to my episode of my picks to cast in the Terminator reboot. I'll give you a hint. The rocks in there. That's the only hint I'm giving y'all. But uh, that's the only way they can recover is going back to the drawing board. That's that's the way I feel about that. So let's move on to number three, people. Dumb ass franchise decision. This one, this one pisses me off a little bit more. This franchise decision pisses me off a little bit more than most of them because this was not only a slasher series that is in my heart. This was a character that was in my heart. 100, 200, 300 percent, man. And for me to get so attached to this character in the in the previous movie for what they did and how they did it, you know, even even with the script rewrites that they gave her character. 
because which they had to do because she read the script for this sequel she was coming back for and she was like no 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 I'm not going out like that and when she said that they did some rewrites and they accommodated her you know as far as the rewrites went but shit still didn't go the way it was supposed to go and that for number three people I'm talking about Killing Rachel Carruthers in Halloween 5, man. Now, I know this is a pretty popular one because there's so many people online that feel the same way I do about this decision. It was a dumbass decision, um, but you got to ask, has the series done dumb shit prior? Yeah, yeah, arguably, yes. And we're not going to talk about Halloween 3 because we. Per- I'm pretty sure I know how everybody feels about that shit there. But it's like one could argue that making... Michael Myers and Laurie Strode siblings was a dumbass decision. I disagree. I think I still think that even though, you know, John Carpenter said what he said about the about that first movie, I still think that Michael Myers was chasing her down the, the whole first movie because they were siblings. That's just my fan theory. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. But John Carpenter needed uh, he needed an out. So he made them siblings. I know a lot of people hated that aspect because they said it takes away from the fact that Michael Myers kills at random and it takes away from his, you know, his predatory sense and stuff like that and takes away from the essence of pure evil and so on and so forth and all the Shakespearean shit that you could say about Michael Myers. So that, like I said, arguably, I disagree. I didn't mind the sibling angle. I, I listen, if it Halloween ends, they reveal that they have been siblings all this time when they wiped it out in the new in the 2018 movie. I'm cool with that, too. I don't care. But uh, Halloween four, a lot of people would arguably say that making Jamie Lee Kurt, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lloyd, Danielle Harris's character, making her stab her stepmother at the end and kind of setting it up for her to be the new Michael Myers was a dumb decision. I disagree because that is one of the most bone chilling. If arguably i'd use that word again one of the best endings in the entire franchise uh that shit still gives me chills to this day so i didn't mind that at all but how it happens now we know rachel carruthers man she was i feel like she got off to a rough start because she was pretty insensitive you know when we first see her she's talking to um I think I think she said it was like four in the morning. She's talking to she's talking to her foster sister, Jamie, and she's like, do you love me, Rachel? And Rachel's just like, of course, I love you. She's like, we're not really sisters, though, Jamie, but that doesn't mean I love you any less and blah, blah, blah. So she's just kind of being like she's not being as sympathetic as she should be in those moments, but she's OK. But then to make matters worse, she's like, oh, I'm missing out on my date with Brady. I got a babysit and blah, blah, blah. And she pisses, you know, she makes Jamie sad once again. But then she takes her out for ice cream. But then again, she's off to another rocky start because she loses Jamie in the midst of her, you know, young and a restless Melrose plays drama with her ain't shit boyfriend Brady when he's trying to fuck Kathleen Kinmont's you know, and her two friends that she's got. When I say two friends, I mean Kathleen Kathleen Kimmont's tits. That's what I'm talking about. If y'all don't know what I'm talking about, please watch Halloween 4. That's all I'm going to say. But ultimately, Rachel ends up being this protector. She ends up being like Laurie Strode 2.0. I know Danielle Harris's character, Jamie Lloyd, is the the emotional centerpiece of the film. But I, I feel like Rachel Carruthers was that maternal figure she was a motherly figure she was a sisterly figure and she went to bat with michael myers for this little girl who in the beginning was like yeah we're not really sisters jamie but i still love you type of thing and that was what made her character 
not likable, so lovable for me, man. Because by the end of the movie, she's pushing Earl's dead body out of his own truck. And Michael Myers is on top of the truck. And here she is swerving all over the road trying to get this fucking serial killer off of the truck to protect her and her sister. And she ends up running Michael Myers over. And it's curtains. After, I mean, it's not curtains because he doesn't die. She ends up running him over. And she's still... Look. When you go up, you, when you go up against Michael Myers to protect somebody, uh, and you survive, like come on, man, you're good in my book. You're definitely good in my book. And Rachel survived, man. So it was always good to see her back in Halloween Five. And you know, I feel like the trauma that they went through in Part Four would have definitely made the two closer, the two characters closer. But no, no. What did Dominique Othenin Gerard do? That's the director and writer of Halloween Five, by the way. What did he do? He reduced. Rachel Carruthers to a Friday the 13th type of girl. She, you know, all she wants to, yeah, I'll think about going to the Tower Farm party. You know, I'm going to just leave my, you know, it's Halloween. I'm going to just leave Jamie here at this, you know, at this orphanage, not orphanage, but it's a, it's, it's Haddonfield Clinic, Haddonfield Children's Clinic. But, you know, she's like, yeah, I got to go home. And because Dr. Loomis basically kicks her and her friend out and she's like, yeah, hey, I got to go home. Mom and dad send her love. And she does tell Dr. Loomis, she's like, yeah, I'm going out to the country with my with my parents. I don't know why I agreed to this because I can't leave Jamie behind. She has more of a conscience in this film as far as protecting Jamie, especially with after what they just went through a year ago in the in the last movie, because it does literally take place a year later in the actual film. But what happens is we literally, she literally gets turned into, I'm not going to say a bimbo, but just a paper thin, you know, blonde in the movie. She takes her clothes off. She gets in the shower. She's running around in a towel for like, excuse me, for like 10 minutes of the film with just this cat and mouse shit with Michael Myers and the cat and mouse stuff in the Carruthers house is okay, but it's just a little bit silly in comparison to what should have happened to Rachel Carruthers character. So what happens is she's still going around the house. The dog Max has been barking up a storm and Dr. Loomis is calling like, is Max all right? Go and check him because Jamie's having paranoid schizophrenic delusions over in this bitch and this John's about to explode. So we need to find out if everybody's okay. You know, you got Loomis calling the cops show up. Her dog comes back, but then the dog starts barking again letting her know everything's wrong and it's even sadder because she calls jamie and she's like jamie i'm okay i love you sweetie bye and jamie can't speak in this movie so she's just blowing kisses over the phone so it makes the moment even more sad so what happens is rachel's you know more friday the 13th shit she's just walking around in a shirt i mean it's it's been done in halloween before and the first one annie was walking around in a shirt but um you know, she's walking around in a shirt. She hears like a glass break in the bedroom and she goes in the room and sees Jamie's picture shattered. And what happens is Michael Myers and this one, it's a weak ass kill because it just comes out of nowhere and boom, she it's just over. And Michael Myers comes out of nowhere. She turns around, she screams and he stabs her in the heart with a pair of scissors. Now, originally she was supposed to get scissors shoved down her throat. But like I said, Ellie Cornell said she's not going out like that. Her She's too attached to the character, but they still did her dirty. You know, you kill this character and then you just surround Danielle Harris with a bunch of paper thin Friday the 13th characters that nobody really gives a fuck about. Now, me personally, I do like Tina. I don't feel like Tina was the best substitution for Rachel, but Tina gave her life for Jamie Lloyd. And that's the fact of the matter, man. I don't have a um I don't have a problem with that at all. And I feel like that's something a lot of people don't give credit to Wendy Kaplan uh, for doing. You know, Wendy Kaplan's the actress that played Tina. They don't give credit to her for, you know, dying for Jamie to live. And somebody said something on YouTube one time, and I'm pretty sure I said this in an episode probably like a year, almost a year ago. Somebody said something in the YouTube comments that broke my heart when they said that 
um, Rachel should have been the one to die for Jamie during that car chase sequence or after that car chase sequence near the tower farm instead of uh, Tina. And that broke my heart because I'm like, how gut-wrenching would that have been to watch to see Rachel survive but finally die in Halloween 5 towards the end of the film in a almost a heroic type of way but just such a sad somber moment it, it would have been way more effective I'm sorry uh, no disrespect to the character of Tina because like I said I don't hate her um you know I don't hate her much at all but a lot of people do but I feel like you know can they recover from this uh, yeah yeah they absolutely can recover from this but Pacing is everything, people. Pacing is everything. And I'll get to that, uh, you know, that that in particular I will get to. Actually, I already did. You know, there's an episode I did where I talked about how they can do a direct sequel to Halloween 4, the, a proper sequel, rather, to Halloween 4, um, set in present day with Ellie Cornell and, and uh, Danielle Harris. That's how you apologize to the fans for doing her character so dirty. I feel like getting... You know, giving her some Laurie Strode Halloween 2018 type of badassness going on would definitely compensate for the way they did her. Uh, and I, I'm all for it. If they would have bring Ellie Cornell back. And first of all, if she was to accept, you know, I don't know how I'm pretty sure she's not too bitter about it. It's probably bittersweet, but I don't think she's bitter towards, you know, um, the late great Mustafa Akkad and Malik Akkad and, and, and um, I don't know, just the people involved in the making of that film for how everything was done. But, I, you know, it, it would be an honor to get her back. Y'all would be so lucky to get her and Danielle Harris back in the series. And I want to see it happen. So I feel like they can recover from killing Rachel. I just think it was a dick move, people. It was a dick move. Now, while we're sticking on the subject of Halloween, people, let's jump into number four because we are jumping right into Halloween six. Now, dumbass decision, killing Jamie Lloyd in Halloween six. Now, I get it. She lived in part four. She lived in part five. I feel like a lot of people were like, okay, we got to move on to some new characters and wrap this Jamie Lloyd storyline up. I can understand that. I dig it. However, first mistake, not bringing back Danielle Harris. Now, if you got, I'm not even going to explain that shit because there's plenty of documentaries and interviews where she talks about that situation is quite unfortunate, man, because, you know, no disrespect to JC Brandy, but she was the replacement for Danielle Harris as Jamie Lloyd in Halloween six. And she's trying, man. She is. But anytime they recast characters, I just look at them as completely different people. And in the case of Halloween six, that goes for Paul Rudd, too. I feel like he's a completely different character, regardless if they call him Tommy or not. It's just very weird. I'm used to it by now especially because Halloween 6 is one of my favorite Halloween movies but I feel like it was a big mistake that was fuck up number one was not bringing Danielle Harris back because it's going to throw people off because whether people liked Halloween 4 or 5 or not I'm pretty sure they could all agree on the fact that Danielle Harris was an amazing child actress in both those movies and she did everything that she could to come back for that role but it didn't happen that way they casted JC Brandy as a teenage Jamie Lloyd and we know the series did dumb shit prior. I just talked about it. Literally, literally just talked about it. Um, and to piggyback on the dumb shit that they did prior in Halloween five, they made Michael Myers a bitch in some point in that movie. Like he cries. Jamie Lloyd makes him cry. She's like, uncle boogeyman. And Michael's just like, huh? And she's like, let me see. Michael takes his mask off. And then you see his punk ass crying. No burn scars on his face, by the way. We didn't know he was Cherokee Indian. Uh, I, I think Don Shanks is Cherokee Indian, but it's like, you know, Michael Myers changes nationalities all the fucking time. He's going to be black in the next movie. And that's not just because of the basement fire at Laurie Schrode's compound. I'm, I can assure you that. But now 
they did dumb shit prior. We've established that. Now, how it happens. We start off Halloween 6 with um, Jamie Lloyd in this underground lair uh, run by the Thorn Cult. Now, we got hints of the Thorn Cult and the Man in Black in Halloween 5, and that was something really weird introduced to the series. So they had to keep that whole thing going with the Man in Black and the cult shit and, you know, all that weird shit. So in the theatrical cut, it is everyone's under the impression that Michael Myers got his niece pregnant and the producers cut. They spell it out for us pretty much. You know, uh, Michael never admits to it because he never fucking talks. But it is alluded to that Michael impregnated his niece to make this baby his final sacrifice. I Listen, if y'all y'all guess is as good as mine with that department. And I, I like Daniel Farrens as a Halloween fan and as a writer. But you, y'all got y'all guys have to listen to. The commentary with him and Alan Howarth and just Anthony, Ma- I'm not, oh, God damn it. Um, Daniel Farron, Daniel Farron's, God damn, Daniel Farron's, uh, y'all got to listen to his commentaries and his interviews as far as where the script is going uh, or where the script was going at the time, because, you know, Jamie Lloyd has his baby and she's running from Michael and you find out that it's actually, I, th- I think it's Smith's Grove. It's like underground in Smith's Grove or wherever the hell they've got her at. And she's she's got her baby and she's fleeing michael myers and he's just on her ass tracking her down and basically what happens is she hides her baby at the bus depot um as you do and what happens is michael myers finds her in this barn after he rams her off the road into a pumpkin patch he finds her in this barn and he kills the shit out of her he throws her on like a corn thresher or whatever the hell that that farm equipment is and she's still alive and she's like you know holding her arms out for michael to help her or hug her or something and michael you think he's going to have a heart at some point because he holds his hands out too but then he pushes her ass further back onto the blades so they're just protruding out of her stomach like just crazy and I remember when I first saw that, I'm like, holy shit, like they just killed Jamie Lloyd and in one of the most vicious ways possible. That's ballsy. And if y'all do that in the beginning of the movie, I'm all for it. But then sometimes I go back and I think of what they were going to do in the original script. She was going to survive and die saving everybody at Smith's Grove at the end of the movie. That was going to be her heroic send off. And I'm like, when I found that out years later, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I got to do a podcast episode about this in a couple years when I finally start one. But um, that's what happens, man. You know, and then Michael turns the machine on and starts grinding up her insides and stuff. And he doesn't find a baby because that's the last thing she says to him. You can't have the baby, Michael. You can't have the baby. And then Mari comes out of nowhere and he's like, in the case of one month old, blah, 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 which didn't even make any sense. Because how the fuck would the baby be one month? People I know I'm all over the place. And sometimes when I try to joke, it just goes left and it doesn't make sense. But y'all know. That's where dry humor gets me, right? Now, it's it's dumb. It's dumb overall because what you I get it. Shock value, shock value, and and there's a part of me that sympathizes with why they did that, the way they did it, because of what they were going for. But even in the producer's cut, she doesn't die that way. She dies in the hospital. The man in black shoots her in the in the fucking head while she's in the hospital from being attacked by Michael Myers. Um, it was a shitty send off. It was. They tried to make it all dramatic and, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, theatrical and stuff like that. But it just didn't work. Um, but I, I get why they did it. There's a part of me that likes the shock value factor. I, I do. But 
there's the, the other part of me outweighs that nowadays because I'm like, damn, I, I just sit back and I, you know, I overthink a lot, not just movie wise, but you know, if we're talking about movies right now, I'm like, I just, I sit back and I think of what could have been like, what would I have done differently to make Halloween six more accepted to make Jamie Lloyd's character, um, way more interesting. What, what could we have done? You know what I'm saying? And can they recover from this? Yeah, I, I go back to what I just said about the Rachel Carruthers character. Yes, you can recover from this. And they did, you know, much love and respect to Rob Zombie, man, for casting Danielle Harris as um, Annie Brackett in his two movies that he did. The 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 20, what was that? Uh, oh, God, 2007. The 2007 Halloween movie and the 2009 sequel. Y'all can check out my commentary for that if y'all want. But, um... Rob Zombie brought her back. I feel like because he knew the fans would appreciate that. And I feel like he appreciated the work that she did in the two Halloween movies she was in. And that was a, that was such a sweet gesture for him to do. But I still feel like after all this time and after how dirty the franchise has done Danielle Harris, she's still loyal to the fans. She's still loyal to the franchise. And I feel like she would still come back. So that is the way y'all compensate and make up for killing her character off the way y'all did in Halloween 6. You can definitely recover from that for sure but again pacing is everything after halloween ends i don't want to see michael myers for another couple years i got a i got a brand new trilogy set that i can sit on for the next couple years if you're going to do another halloween movie do a sequel to season of the witch but i do feel like daniel harris and ellie cornell are both owed their dues i feel like they are definitely owed a comeback in the series a lot of people disagree that's cool just my opinion now moving on to number five people because we're gonna wrap this shit up in a little bit like i said i only got six on this list and we're almost 45 minutes into this god damn i'll be losing track of time people this is what happens when i you know i get my thoughts out to y'all so i blame y'all for this this is all y'all fault i didn't do it so number five this is another one that i man i'm still not over this because when i first saw this Everybody had the same reaction to it. Everybody was like, wait, what? Like, is he coming back? Like, this is a joke, right? This, they didn't just do that. Like, not not before the third act of the movie, but they did. And number five is killing Randy in Scream 2. Now, has the series done dumb shit prior? It's really hard to say. And honestly, I got to say no, but it would be hard to tell because this was only the second movie in. I could see if they did it in the third movie for some shock value, but they did it in the second movie to really show people that they meant business. And while I respect it at the end of the day, because you want people to know that you're serious, like, yeah, Scream started off as a satire. And I feel like a lot of people forget that. That's one of the reasons I love Scream 3 is because it fully embraced the fact that it's a fucking satire. It wasn't meant to be taken seriously, honestly. It's meant to be meta and poke fun at the slasher genre. But when Scream 3 did that, a lot of people didn't appreciate that. And it and just fucking boggles my mind, man. But it just so happened that off the page a lot of stuff in that original scream was scary because i remember my big cousin taking a, a bunch of us younger cousins to the theater to see it and there were moments in the theater where everybody was scared uh, whether it was the opening with drew barrymore whether it was the chase sequence throughout the marker house at the end there were parts that were genuinely scary in that first movie back when everybody saw it so it's it's you really can't say the franchise made dumb decisions because scream is kind of one of those uh, it's kind of one of those bottle films, man. It's one of those once in a lifetime type of things that you'll never, 
you'll never get those types of movies again. Uh, no matter how many sequels you do, nothing's going to top that first film uh, at all. And I'm not saying that to try to down talk the new movie that's coming out in January, but you're not going to fuck with that first movie. If you do, then I'll stand corrected and I'll eat more crow. Y'all know, y'all know, man, I have no problem uh, admitting when I was wrong about a movie. Um, but, you know, so I don't think the series has done dumb shit prior, but how it happens is, you know, everybody's sitting in the park on the college campus. You've got Randy, you've got Gail, you've got Dewey, which was good to see because the returning characters are still hanging out. And then you got Joel played by, uh, Dwayne Martin. And that was, uh, Gail's cameraman in the second movie. And where the hell is he at? Like, can we get him in screen five? Damn. Like, can we get these returning characters to come back? I, like, I'm just saying, where did everybody go? But he, obviously he was a smart black guy in the series who got the fuck out of Dodge. But they're all sitting in the park. Gail's phone keeps ringing. Randy answers it. He's like, Gail's not here. And they find out that his ghost face and ghost face is actually watching them from an unknown position. So Dewey and Gail run off to have their lovers quarrel, um, detective moments and shit. So Randy's got a funny moment where he's just shit talking with ghost face. And then he kind of takes it to the extreme and it makes you wonder why, like, why was this a trigger? We find out later on that he was actually talking to Mrs. Loomis, uh, spoiler alert, because there are two killers in Scream 2 as well. Um, Mickey played by Tim Oliphant and, um, Mrs. Loomis played by that woman in Roseanne with the short hair. I can't remember that actress's name. Is it Lori Metcalf? I want to say her, her name is Lori Metcalf, but you know, that was a trigger. Everything he's saying about Billy, Ghostface just get qui gets quiet and pulls Randy into this van that he's standing in front of. You don't even know Ghostface is in the van and because you keep getting these POV shots of Randy looking all over the place. There's people playing catch. There's all types of distractions and there's all types of laughs to be had in that moment. But Randy gets pulled into this van and not only does he get his 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 back tossed into the window and the window shatters. So who knows what type of damage that did before he gets all stabbed up. But Ghostface just starts stabbing his ass up and then cuts his fucking throat. Now, there was something in the script where Randy survived and was going to be in screen three, but he had survived his injuries and went into protective custody. No disrespect to the late great Wes Craven, but no. No, that fucker's dead. That motherfucker got stabbed in a bunch of uh, major organs, probably was bleeding out at the time, and got his fucking throat slashed. Randy is a bloody mess when they find that dead body in that van. And that moment, it's just like, yo, the, mo the honestly, the movie stops for me at that point. The only reason it picks back up is because um holly you know elise neal's character and sydney get attacked in the police car the two police officers get killed or the um, the secret service guys get killed and the third act the third act is pretty decent but when randy dies i don't really give a shit about anything else for the most part like in my heart i don't care because randy let's talk about why it was dumb uh it's a good segue into why this was dumb because randy was us randy was the audience man he was saying everything that the movie geeks the true movie geeks were thinking about from the first movie alone he's like if you were he said if you were the prime suspect in the senseless bloodbath would you be standing in the horror section like it's so many things that randy says that we feel like we are like he is our ventriloquist at that point or we either or like i don't know how i'm how i was trying to word that but y'all get what i'm saying randy's the voice of the people man and randy honestly there hasn't been a character with the exception of charlie and kirby and scream four uh even though that's my least favorite sequel i don't hate it but it's my least favorite of the sequel of the bunch 
But other than those two, Randy's still the best character in any Scream movie ever. No diss to Sidney and Dewey and Gale and Deputy Hicks and everybody that survived and Patrick Dempsey's character, Detective Kincaid. I wonder if they're bringing him back. No diss to them. I love me some Scream movies, man. I love me the Scream characters that they bring and I love how witty they are. But nah, man. No, 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 no. Rant. No, 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 no. Just Stupid, stupid decision that they could never recover from. You can't recover from that. That was a segue into the last question. You can't recover from that. And and I swear to God, they better not bring Randy back because he's dead. Now, as much as I would want to buy it and be like, yo, Randy got his neck sewn up. He can't talk. He's got like a, you know, one of them trachea rings or something like that, whatever the hell they call him. And, you know, he got patched up really quickly and his parents put him into protective custody and his sister put him into protect. No, I'm not buying it, man, because he died. Randy died and y'all fucked up. So there's no recovering from that. And there's not going to be a character that's fucking with him unless Scream 5 proves otherwise in January. I look, there's no recovering from that. I just don't see it. So let's jump to number six, the last of the Mohicans before we're an hour into this and you guys get bored listening to me. You know, if y'all haven't already, hopefully y'all have not and are still sticking around. But uh, number six, man, this is actually a three piece, three piece, no nugget. You know what I'm saying? This is a three piece right here. Number six in our last dumbass franchise decision, killing Kincaid, Joey and Kristen in Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the Dream Master. Now, this, this this was just, I, I get it. I understand. And something happens in the third movie where it's like, okay, if that happened at the end, anything can happen moving forward. I understand three, four, and five do this with, with certain characters that you think are going to make it through. Now, really quickly, let me talk about part three before I jump into has a series done dumb shit prior. Um, uh, part three... When we see Nancy died at the end of the movie, anybody can go. Nancy and her father. But Nancy in particular, when she died, any of these kids can get it. That that was it for me. You know, and the way she died, the way uh, Patricia Arquette is just like, I'm gonna dream you into a beautiful dream forever and ever. And the way she's whimpering, I'm just like, damn, like is somebody cutting onions in this bitch? Because I sure am not, but it, you know, it's effective. But after that, it's like, yo, anybody's on the chopping block. Freddie is fucking vicious at this point. But um, has the series done dumb shit prior to part four? Um, I, 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 me personally, I don't think so. People might argue they did a lot of stupid shit in part two. They broke a lot of rules, but it was only the second movie. Now, I know the established lore, the established rules and stuff like that were already established, of course, in the first movie, right? But uh, the second movie was very ballsy. I feel like that was when Freddy Krueger was at his most intimidating and... I just love that it's a possession film. It's so crazy and it's so black sheepish as far as the franchise is concerned. But I love me a good underdog uh, entry, man. I really do. And I tend to gravitate towards what a lot of people hate. But like I said, arguably, because over the years, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 has found its voice. It's definitely found its voice, man, uh, especially amongst the LGBT community, because they embrace Mark Patton's character, Jesse. Uh, Mark Patton, you know, they didn't say Jesse was gay in the movie, but Mark Patton turns out he actually was a gay actor. There's a lot of uh, homoerotic things in that second movie. But, you know, if y'all listen to my commentary for Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I have a ball watching it every single time I do, man. I love that fucking movie, man. I have... Uh, um, no hatred in my heart for anything that they did. They broke rules. They were ballsy about it. And I love it. And Nightmare on Street 3, 
I I don't I feel like that's the most popular entry. So personally, for you know the majority, and for me personally, I don't think the franchise did dumb shit prior. So why would y'all start on part four? Why would y'all start making dumbass decisions for part four? Now, how it happens? We get you know our they the the last of the Elm Street children at the end of part three. You know, not including Neil, he was their doctor. But the last of the Elm Street children in part three were Kincaid, Joey, and Kristen. Nancy died. Everybody else died. So the movie starts off with Kristen now replaced by, you know, Patricia Car. I almost called her Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette was replaced by Tuesday night as Kristen Parker. I prefer Patricia Arquette, but you know, it, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. I don't hate Tuesday night. Her performance is just slightly awkward in the film. I don't know, man. I'm just a brat when it comes to recasting. Nothing against Tuesday night, man, because I'll probably be, if she has an Instagram page, I'm tagging her to this, and I hope she takes no offense to this whatsoever, because you are forever a part of a, a, a great Nightmare on Elm Street film. You're a part of a great series, and you had a, a, you know, a career in music, so who the hell am I on a small podcast platform to talk shit? But you know, we start off with Kristen, the new and improved Kristen who can still bring people into her dream. So what does she do? She brings Joey and Kincaid into her dream, Rodney Eastman and Ken Sagos. And, you know, Kincaid's like, bitch, you are putting a, a, a serious dent in my beauty sleep. And I, I just love it because Kincaid is just pissed off right from the rip. And, you know, Joey's just just so cool surfer like he's just high as fuck he's like the pipes are cold the boiler's cold here put your hand against it it's cold right it's cold as ice this is my best jim morrison impression so we get the elm street kids they this is the thing though uh it's really weird that they're not as close as you figured they would be with all the shit they went through in weston hills and in their dreams in particular you would think that they would chill around each other more maybe have a support group of their own just the three of them maybe they have tequila and smoke a l and talk about the traumatic events that they went through prior to getting their asses back in school and you know trying to go about having a normal life but they're it's not like that um they, they don't hang out at all you only see them outside of the dream you only see them three together in one sequence and that's when they're talking about the night before when they were all in the same dream together and it's a cool moment but that's the only moment you get with the three they feel very much detached from each other um you know after that last movie which was kind of strange to me it's just very strange to me man now um how it happens is freddie doesn't kill them uh, at the same time of course he kills them all separately now he kills kincaid first kincaid falls asleep and he ends up in a junkyard where freddie's bones were buried at in the last movie and his dog pisses fire onto um you know where freddie's <laughs> where freddie's buried at freddie comes back to life he puts himself back together uh it's a decent scene kincaid thinks he kills him by smashing a car on top of him he celebrates but freddie doesn't go down that easily in the dream world that's his realm you know you're fucking around with his timetable at this point i sound like the dude from what was his name fouché from bad boys he's like you're fucked with my timetable and i'll kill the put the bullet in the chemist and the next bullet is for the girl like that's anytime i hear timetable i think of fouché from bad boys but um Kincaid basically he gets stabbed he just gets stabbed and he's like I'll see you in hell and he's like tell him Freddy sent you and then he stabs him one more time and then he stabs him again when he's like one down two to go is because he thinks these are the last of the Elm Street kids he has to worry about until he gets introduced to the new ones so Kincaid wakes up and he's he's like gasping and I don't know if he died of like a heart attack or just internal bleeding because you know if you die in your dreams of course you die for real but it has to make sense in the real world which it doesn't um for the next kill you know Kincaid dies but the next kill Joey 
Joey falls asleep watching MTV and he's got his headphones in and it's kind of a nod back to Johnny Depp, you know, having the, the headphones in the TV, watching a Miss America pageant and shit like that and getting sucked into the bed. But what happens is Freddie, th- there's a girl, a naked girl in his bed. And we all know Joey's a sucker for some blonde haired and tits and ass. So there's a naked girl in his waterbed that was on his poster, uh, you know, prior to that. And he's looking for her when she disappears into the bed and Freddie pops out and he's like, how's this for a wet dream? And he starts drowning him. But when he sticks his glove into the water, you just see a pool of blood now. So it is literally a bloodbath he's turned Joey's waterbed into. So he drowns him and kills him. But when Joey's mom finds him, he's just stuck in the waterbed. So I don't there's no explanation as to how Joey got in there, which is kind of strange. But uh, who the fuck knows, man? It's a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I feel like you can take all the creative liberties you want to. Um you know, there's a there's a fine line between whether you can say if things make sense or not, uh, because, like I said, it's a Nightmare on Elm Street film. And Kristen, her mom drugs her. Her mom puts sleeping pills in her, you know, in her drink at, at the dinner table or lunch, whatever the hell they're having in the afternoon. So Kristen ends up falling asleep. She's trying to call Alice, but she falls asleep and she's like, dream someplace fun. She dreams of a beach. But then Freddie pops up on the beach, kicks her ass in the sand. She ends up at the Elm Street house, 1428 Elm, again, uh, the house that she can't seem to get out of her dreams. Maybe she was meant to live there forever. I don't know. But what happens is she brings Alice into her dream and him, her introducing Alice to Freddie introduces Freddie to Alice's friends. And that kind of kickstarts the rest of the kills for the movie. And what happens is Freddie throws Kristen while she's trying to protect uh, Alice from Freddie. She throws Christian in Kristen into you know, this, this pool of fire. And she gives, you know, Alice her power. She's like, you need my power. She throws her the power into Alice after Freddie takes her soul. You know, Kristen is in the chest of souls and spits the power into Alice in the dream. And Alice wakes up. But when Alice wakes up, Rick, you know, she's like, we got to get to Kristen's house. And when they're outside the house, they see Kristen's room is on fire. And it's a really sad scene because you see Kristen's pan hanging off the bed, burning. They didn't say how the fire started. All they show after her burning to death is uh, the cemetery where Donald Thompson, John Saxon's character, Nancy Thompson, Heather Langenkamp, Kincaid, Joey, and now Kristen Parker, they're all buried around each other. That is one of the most heartbreaking moments in the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series by itself. Why was this dumb? Because they should have been the... the, they should have been the the thing for the movie. I would have loved to see Kristen, Joey, and Kincaid interact with Sheila, interact with Dan, interact with Debbie, interact with Rick. I would have loved to see that, man. But instead, we just get all these characters that we got so attached to dispatched in the first act of the movie. And it's before the first act of the movie's even over. But, but... Like I said, once Nancy died in the Dream Master, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, the uh, the Dream Warriors. Once Nancy died in that movie, all bets were off at that point. Uh, anybody can go, and that's why I said three, four, and five do this. They kill Nancy in part three. They kill Joey, Kristen, and Kincaid in part four. Dan survives part four with Alice from almost dying in the dream, but he wakes up because he's hemorrhaging. But he dies before the first act is over of part five. So the Nightmare on Elm Street series was known for doing that over the course of those three films. So it, you know, it happens. But three and one? Like, come on, man. You could have left, you could have left Tuesday night in there, killed Joey off. And that's no disrespect to Rodney Eastman, but killed Joey off in the second act, killed 
Kincaid off in the third act. You could have scrambled the, the the kill sequences around a little bit, but not not before the first act is over. And not those three characters, man, because everybody loved those characters. Everybody had things that they loved about those characters, man. Even Joey, there was something likable about Joey in the third movie, even though he only had how many lines did he have? He said no. Then he said, "Did I say that?" You got five words total probably in that entire movie. Um, I don't think he said anything after that, honestly. But there's something likable about all those characters. So to just toss them out like, you know, like it's nothing was it was a disservice to, um, you know, the character arcs that they developed in the in the Dream Warriors, man, because they I love how Kristen says, you know, how could I let them get to them? We were a team and they were, you know, and they all that shit was just forgotten and thrown out the window in the next movie. And I'm not I'm not throwing shade at Rennie Harlan or whoever the writer was for that film, but it was just a dumbass decision to make, man. Uh, just the way that it was executed overall. They could have, if it was executed differently, I'd be a little more forgiven. Now, the question before we wrap this up, people, how can they recover? How can they recover? Um, I feel like, you know, somebody said on Facebook one time, this was a random person in the comments and was like, yo, I would take a sequel to the Dream Warriors. And I'm like, I would love to see that. But if you do that, it's going to tear fans in half because it's like, do you bring back Patricia Arquette or do you bring back Tuesday night? Now, I know the majority would say, yeah, bring back the original Kristen, Patricia Arquette. But believe it or not, people, Nightmare on Elm Street 4's Kristen Tuesday night has she has her fan base as well, especially people that were familiar with her music prior. So it's, it's, it's kind of a tricky situation with how you do that. But if they were to do a direct sequel to Dream Warriors and these kids are well now adults, you know, Joey Kincaid and. Uh, Kristen, if they're still fucked up from what they went through with Weston Hills, I don't know if the actor that played Neil is uh is still living or not. I'm not sure, but if he is, bring him back as well. But if they did that, I I, I would buy that, man. You know, whether they put Patricia Arquette or uh, Tuesday Night in there, I would definitely buy a Dream Warriors sequel. That's the only way they can recover from that. I'm not saying that the series is over because they're, they're going to make more Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I guess the the you know Wes Craven's estate is just trying to figure out which what is the best way to go about doing it and you know they're taking their time and i feel like with the resurgence of all these slasher movies michael myers uh chucky the candy man ghost faces coming back Leatherface is coming in february and you know pinheads getting tv series in a in a, in a separate movie with, with this resurgence that's coming i feel like um it's good that they're taking their time with with the nightmare on elm street movie because with another nightmare on elm street movie rather because what we got last time with that 2010 remake that was just a shit show and um, and that's definitely no shade to Jackie Earl Haley. I thought he was a great Freddy Krueger and I thought he was a really good intimidating Freddy Krueger, but he just, he didn't have anything to work with. He didn't have a good script. He didn't have a good director. He didn't have, uh, you know, good producers around him, a strong enough cast. There was no creativity in there whatsoever. So he, he did everything he could to make Freddy scary again. So it wasn't his fault. It was just everything around him was just crumbling and you know, it wasn't his fault, but I would rather we pace ourselves with Nightmare on Elm Street, even though it's been a decade and some change. I would rather we pace ourselves and come up with something really innovative, something really creative, something really wacky and and uh, fantastic, rather than rush into a Freddy movie and you know have another piece of shit that's going to take you know bring us ten steps backwards and bring us back to the drawing board. Because that's one of the reasons why they did a remake in the first place was because it's like okay, how do we follow up Freddy's Dead? How do we follow up Freddy versus Jason? You know they didn't know what to do, so they went back to the drawing board with a remake. But excuse me, people. Jesus Christ, excuse me. But um, I say that to say this, people, in, in my, you know, my closing statements. 
you franchises out there, man, you have to be careful how you handle your characters. Um, I was just watching a podcast earlier where it was an older episode, but they were talking about how everybody was salty when they killed, you know, Han in Tokyo Drift. Han, you know, Sun Kane's character was the best part of Tokyo Drift for me personally. So you kill him in that same movie, but you had to bring his ass back. You know, we knew he was going to die eventually. So, you know, because Tokyo Drift is a prequel to furious seven so when he dies in the open at the end of fast six you know furious seven they're going to touch on that he's going to be dead fast eight he's still dead fast nine they had to bring that ass back because he's a fan favorite you know you have to they did the same thing with michelle rodriguez there are certain ways you have to handle your you got to pay attention to what the fans want you got to pay attention to what the fans gravitate towards if the fans love kristen parker they want to see kristen parker in the next movie they don't want to see her killed off in the first act if the fans love rachel carruthers they don't want to see her you know reduced to this you know a blonde bimbo that's half naked running around like she's clueless throughout the whole the whole first act of the film and then just getting killed off like it's nothing you know like she was a character that meant nothing to anybody like she was disposable the fans don't want that so i feel like a lot of the times these especially when these new directors jump into the driver's seat um, for something that already exists, they don't really know how to handle a lot of these characters. So they're just like, all right, man, look, I don't know what to do. What should I do? And then you probably either have them being lazy or you have the producers around them, the suits around them being lazy. Like, yeah, we could just kill the character off. No big deal. We got a bunch of new characters to do all this other shit with. That's what I feel like happens a lot of time. They don't know how to execute but I, I've, there's room for improvement as far as franchises go, because the, fran the franchise thing nowadays is bringing people back. That's one of the things that has me on the fence about Scream. A lot of people say Stu is going to pop up in Scream 5, and I'm like, bullshit. If he pops up, bullshit. That motherfucker got a TV. First of all, he was bleeding out. He, he told him, he's like, Billy, you got me too deep. I think I'm dying here, man. It's like you're bleeding to death for one. Two, you get a TV thrown on top of your head and get electrocuted. If you now there was a Scream 3 draft where Stu came back as the killer. And I'm like, how, Sway? Like, how? But that's the new thing that franchises are doing. They're bringing back characters and they're tying up loose ends and they're going to try to make it make sense. One of the big like, but let me just say this before I end this in the process of making it make sense. Y'all be the fuck careful with them with, with that screenwriting, man, because a lot of that shit is lazy writing and is bamboozling to the point where I'm just not buying it. I'm a Fast and Furious fan, but the, the explanation they had for how Han survived complete bullshit. It was one of the worst things about that movie for me as much as I enjoyed it. I'm not buying how they brought him back. Don't bring people back on no bullshit. They brought Michelle Rodriguez back in Resident Evil also of Retribution because she died in that first movie, but they gave her two characters in that they brought her back as a clone of rain and they brought her back as a clone of just some suburban woman who was very timid didn't know how to shoot guns and defend herself nothing like that but because it's a fan favorite character they probably were like yeah let me bring this character back for a sequel and give her two roles this time around tell her tell her it's on my tab but i you just have to be careful with how you write the way these characters come back if you do bring them back at all or don't kill them in the first motherfucking place. I feel like these characters shouldn't have been killed when they were killed in the fashion that they were killed. And that's that's all I got to say about that, people. I'm just, you know, I'm just a passionate movie guy. That's it. I just love my characters, man. I don't want my characters to go, you know, if you go out, go out heroic. Don't do it just for shock value and don't do it in a lazy way to just to just get rid of characters to introduce new ones that can't even fill the shoes or the socks, for that matter, of the characters you're killing off. You have to be careful, man. It's, it's, a, it's quite the minefield in situations like that, but I feel like um, 
it, it's very avoidable. It's very avoidable at the end of the day, man. So stop killing off my beloved characters, you motherfuckers out there. That's all I got to say about that, people. But y'all already know. I got to get to some commentary, man, because I, I've been playing around. I have no idea when I'm going to upload all these episodes. I really don't because I've just been rocking and rolling, rightfully so. But, um, yeah, man, y'all already know where to go, man. And if y'all don't, which y'all should, y'all better at this point, man. God damn. But I know I get I get a lot of new listeners, every not a lot of, but some new listeners every once in a blue moon. But I'm grateful for all of y'all. But if y'all don't know, man, y'all can follow the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Public, Podbean, and Podcast Addict. Shout out to Anchor. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Romero Tudor. Shout out to the Facebook movie group, The Cinemaniacs. And shout out to the Facebook movie group, The Horror Virus. And last but not least, shout out to the Tudor Review the listeners the lovers the supporters out there man y'all are killing it still tuning in um and hopefully y'all continue to do so for this week that is that'll be like the ultimate birthday gift just you guys tuning in and us making it to the 14k mark no pressure no pressure man if we don't get there we'll get there eventually i'm not in a rush to you know kill motherfucker kill shit i don't know how i was about to make it make sense but i was about to say i'm not in a rush to kill shit off like you know i don't want to kill off the 13.8k if that makes any sense this isn't making sense is it it's not man this is why i would never last a day or even five seconds on stage doing some stand-up comedian shit this is why i only do my dry humor and jokes with you guys man uh on the comfort of this of this podcast platform man because i feel like i feel like a lot of listeners out there have been tuning in long enough to know what i'm trying to say when i don't make sense of the words the way i'm trying to say them when i say my words get what i'm saying i know y'all don't and sometimes neither do i but y'all already know man much love for y'all y'all already know love and support that y'all show me i definitely show it back to y'all tenfold and then some so with that being said people yours truly romero tutor another episode of tutor reviews in the can i'll check y'all on the next one